Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. Canada's relationship with China is anything but straightforward. As our country contemplates a new approach to the Indo-Pacific region and ministers suggest a decoupling from China, how will domestic concerns like economic ties be accounted for? And just how deeply does Chinese influence run in our politics and our culture? I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Veena Najibula, adjunct professor at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia, and an expert in international security and peacebuilding. Vina joined me to talk about what's next for our two governments. This is Political Traction. So Vina, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Adam. You were just at the Halifax International Security Forum, where I know that Russia and Ukraine took a lot of the attention, but I, I understand that there was a lot of conversation around China as well. Yeah, so this weekend we have the International Security Forum in in Halifax, which is really a premier security event hosted in Canada, the only one, and it brings together a very large U.S. delegation as well as some uh, from Europe and in the Pacific region. So it's a forum of democracies, right? And you're absolutely right. Ukraine took center stage, uh, deservedly so, because of everything that's happening there. But um, all of the main speakers, and Secretary Austin from the U.S. was one of the keynote speakers, as was obviously Minister Anand, who was hosting uh, the event. Both of their speeches managed to obviously situate the Ukraine threat as the or the Ukraine crisis, invasion, war as the main threat in Europe and an acute challenge, but also mentioned China as a uh, in the U.S. language as a pacing challenge, as a generational challenge that needs to continue to uh, keep our attention. And really, while Ukraine was kind of the center, the a lot of the conversations were bookmarked by in the Indo-Pacific, sort of the need to pivot to the Indo-Pacific, because that's the region where this competition between the great powers, U.S. and China, is going to play out. And uh, and within that, obviously, figuring out then our China strategy and policy, right? So, and like I said, that was very much a theme uh, echoed throughout the event, even though there was a lot of discussion about the immediate challenges of Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky also spoke, but even in, in his speech, there were other themes that were being brought together, which I thought was really important to keep in mind the, the broader context. Now, China seems to be Canada's most fretted about relationship. Why are these concerns growing more overt? And I say over the past few months, but even looking back years, it seems almost like it's on an acceleration curve where I didn't hear very much about China uh, up until five, six years ago. And then all of a sudden, it suddenly seemed to dawn on people that we were completely coupled to a country that we don't have much in common with culturally. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. China is a complicated relationship to manage for Canada, but also for other countries as well, right? I mean, U.S. obviously sees it as peer competitor and, like I said, a generational challenge and threat. But for Canada, given that our close alliance with the U.S. and our values and interests, China now does present a serious challenge. And 
it has been difficult to, to manage the relationship because I, can, I think historically we had seen it through a binary of trade versus human rights, right? And like we had this debate of we have to trade with them because they're the second largest economy, they're, they're a huge market, and our prosperity demands that we have a close relationship. And then there were groups that were talking about human rights. But over the last five years, we've seen that it's, it's a lot more than that, right? Like the relationship can't just be seen through that lens that we need to see it in its totality, that China now represents the sort of the only country in the world that has, in, in the words of the U.S., both the intent and the capability to restructure the world that we know today, right? Like this sort of rules-based international order, the international system, whatever language you want to use. But the world that was created since World War II that has norms, rules, institutions, and that has really, quite frankly, benefited Canada and the U.S. and, and other countries, that that world is being reshaped and that the primary uh, actor trying to reshape it is China. Now, China is not the only one, Russia, others are also playing a part in this, but that China has both that intent to rise the world, to make it more friendly to its own authoritarian uh, form, but also the capacity because of its economic power. As China's national power has risen, so have our worries about them. I mean, that's sort of as, as frankly as I can put it. And of course, I mean, the reality is our planning, thinking, strategizing has been behind the curve on, on how to address this because it requires a serious systemic rethink. I'm glad to see that we're finally doing that, right? So, and, and we can get into that with our Indo-Pacific strategy that's now in the works and hopefully finally going to be coming out and, and the general sort of change of tone and understanding of what we're dealing with. I think one of the most practical, illuminating for me examples of this Chinese influence, both in economics and culture, is when somebody pointed out to me that that James Bond has never had a Chinese adversary. And when you consider that they are the main adversary, like geopolitical adversary to the West right now, but film companies are completely beholden to that market. So we they, they have such a, an upper leg compared to, say, what Russia or the Soviet Union had 40 years ago, where they didn't need to worry about people seeing your movie in Moscow. Yeah, and, and what you're pointing out to is the, just the degree and levels of influence and interference, right? So that's an example of a uh, U.S. industry, in this case, film industry in Hollywood, self-censoring, right? So in order to be able to have access to that market, companies self-censor. That's not unique to film industry. We've also seen that with, with Nike and, and a whole bunch of other big uh, companies. Where and, and that's something that should concern us, right? And in general, um, authoritarian countries take advantage of uh, the openness uh, of our democratic systems and the financial incentives that drive our private sector, right? So they, they essentially either uh, co-opt through money and inducements or they coerce and interfere by sort of penetrating our democratic institutions and, and our open debate. So what are some other examples of that overt influence that China um, would take on Canada and other nations? Well, some of it is obviously the uh, 
the influence and interference over uh, Chinese Canadian or Chinese Australian or Chinese US. So the diaspora community is, is a vulnerability. And there you see everything from uh, social media disinformation, uh, particular sort of campaigns to, to influence opinion, to shape outcomes of elections, particularly in uh, writings in our case, where there is a large uh, community. Uh, you're also obviously seeing more coercive measures where they've tried to bring in uh, people that they, they want for whatever reason, be that criminal or political uh, human rights issues. They, they pressure relatives or others here to, for them to return. So that's something that we saw recently through the so-called police stations, right? And, and um, uh, an NGO from uh, Spain has sort of documented these police stations around the world. And we have three of them apparently in Toronto, which is uh, really concerning. So that's that's another way. Um, obviously, we, we've now been hearing stuff around elections, and that's not unique to us. I mean, uh, if those allegations are in fact true, proven to be true, um, that wouldn't be the first time. Australia went through the same thing uh, about five, six years ago, and uh, they documented that 5.5 million was actually channeled to some of their candidates in, in their elections, right? So, I mean, we were hearing figures of, you know, 250,000, but just by comparison, this is not the first time it has happened. And as a result, Australia took action, right? So, and I guess all of this um, requires us to have strategies. Um, the lesson here is that we can be reactive and sort of whenever there is a crisis or some kind of media attention, there are some statements, reactions made, and then we move on, right? We, we actually need to have strategies for countering holistically the interference in all of these various spheres through uh, institutions, through um, media, through uh, electoral processes, right? So for that, we need legislation. And U.S. and Australia already have them in terms of uh, addressing this. Uh, U.K. is developing it right now as we speak. And there have been voices in Canada that have called for them, but so far it hasn't happened, right? So I think that's where the conversation now needs to go. We know the challenge. We know the threat. We've had examples of it. Let's do something about it beyond statements. There's so many different directions that we can go here. <laughs> I'll, I'll, start, I'll start with you know, right at the very top of the uh, prime minister's yeah. office and Justin Trudeau, he seems to, his office seems to have been, had been caught a bit flat footed by this news release, this global news investigation on election and fear. It's which happened while he was in the same room as, uh, uh, as, as, uh, she, and, uh, we all saw that big, that blow up and that, that, uh, diplomatic row where they were, you know, the video that everybody poured their own, uh prejudices into to uh to, to understand um how much of okay i'm going to project here a little bit what i see in what in 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 trudeau i suspect that there's a bit of a reticence to swing 180 on china and suddenly become a china hawk given his the, the beginning of his administration the beginning of his government going back to 2016 and their approach to china which was very friendly and very warm is there a hesitation to to be seen almost to say like okay if I turn myself into a China hawk right now then I'm admitting that I was wrong at the beginning of uh, of, of my tenure? I don't know. I mean, I think we have seen gradually um, 
Prime Minister Trudeau and, and a lot of his senior ministers changing their language and tone on, on China, right? I mean, the speech that uh, Minister Jolie gave on, on November 9th in kind of uh, giving a bit of a teaser for their Indo-Pacific strategy did name uh, China as a disruptive power, right? I mean, it did situate China as a challenge and a threat that needs to be dealt with and kind of had this formula of, you know, we will cooperate with them when we must and we will challenge them when we ought to, right? So it's sort of starting to reflect the language of other countries. So I think, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau has said that China of uh, 2015 and even 2017 is not the same as the China we're encountering now, right? So I think there is a slow, it's very much been slower than many have wanted, but a slow realization and a change in rhetoric and tone. I'm not sure that has fully translated yet into actual strategy and, and actions and a coherent approach. But that may not be limited to China, quite frankly, right? I mean, in general, Canada doesn't have a habit or in a tradition of articulating strategies, a national security strategy or foreign policy strategy. So this is new, and um, it, that's why it's taken two years to have a, a coherent strategy articulated on the Indo-Pacific and obviously within that on China. So I don't know how much it's about personalities, but rather kind of a systemic issue that we don't have a tradition of, of these kinds of debates. Even a country like Australia or UK, which are very much our peers in terms of kind of middle powers, right? Um, they have a robust tradition of, of various white papers of, of national conversations about their foreign policy and national uh, security issues and, and threats and go through annual exercises, which we don't. I almost find it comforting to to hear that we are an isolated case when it comes to an inability to legislate on, on this stuff, because it, it it is nice to know that, it, that it's just us and it's not not everybody else. And well, it comes sorry, from a wanted... privilege, yeah. I mean, I think what I also want to stress is we haven't had to do it because um, because of our privileged position, because of our geography, our location with the U.S., because the, of the blessings of our natural resources, right? I mean, Canada is an incredibly peaceful and, and prosperous place, and we've enjoyed all of these blessings without a lot of effort on national security and foreign policy, because again, of, of the privilege of our position. And I think the reality is that is all changing, not only because of China, but also because of the dynamics in the US and because there is a desire on the part of the US and other allies to see us do more, uh, spend more on our defense, do more strategizing and thinking around the Arctic, show up more assertively in the Indo-Pacific and so forth, right? So there's there's now this call for us to do more. I think people are recognizing that, hence we're seeing some movement, right? Like Minister Champagne is putting together a strategy on critical mineral resources and rare earth. Like we're seeing pockets of activity, which is very much wanted and, and necessary. So talking about the cabinet and how they are aligning on this new approach, we know that Minister Jolie's team has been consulting the PIMO and cabinet ministers onto this new Indo-Pacific policy for some time. And it's nearing completion or it's done. And it's, you know, we're we're in this gray area where they say it's sort of done, but we don't, you don't get to see the whole thing. Um, there still seems to be a bit of jockeying with ministers not aligned on the messaging on this, mm. specifically regarding China's role in, in Canada's future. What do you expect to see and what would you hope to see in this uh, in this strategy? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we, we saw a lot of it in the, the speech that Minister Jolie gave, right, which uh, essentially said that Indo-Pacific is where a lot of the decisions that impact 
Canada's security and prosperity will be made. Therefore, we need to be present in the region and we need to be a reliable partner, right? I mean, I think her main sort of thesis was that Canada needs to be a trusted, reliable partner in the region and provide a holistic uh, set of engagements on trade, on people to people, on peace and security. So sort of like a holistic approach. And that within that, ASEAN is going to be a centerpiece uh, hence participation of the prime minister and the minister at the ASEAN uh, summit, uh, the trade, free trade agreements with Indonesia and ASEAN. So these are, I mean, that we're already seeing that, right? What we're not yet clear about is what's the money behind all of this, right? I mean, we started to see a little bit of that announced during the trip, but by my count, everything so far adds up to about a billion dollars, 750 million of which is concessionary loans and funding uh, through the infrastructure uh, for infrastructure projects, right? So it, it's not a ton of money yet behind all of these uh, good statements and, and policies. So let's see what the full strategy will look like. So I'll be paying attention to are we putting enough money behind this really lofty rhetoric and, and package of initiatives, um, especially comparing what we're doing in Ukraine, right? Like we were putting billions of dollars there. And so if Indo-Pacific is this central priority now, where's the money? Um, what I also found um, reassuring in her speech was the understanding that we need to strengthen our diplomatic capacity to engage, that we need more capability within global affairs and within government and around our embassies around the world to actually do diplomacy, to have influence, right? She said that, you know, we're competing for influence and to compete for influence, you have to have capacity, actual human talent and human resources to, to engage with the world, to understand the world, to develop these strategies. So I, I would be looking to what that actually means in terms of staffing, in terms of what, what changes, right, within global affairs. It, it probably means fewer Russian garden parties. <laughs> well, and, and hopefully more actual uh, expertise dedicated in capacity within global affairs, but also within the prime minister's office, in other ministries, right? Because this requires a whole of government and a whole of society approach. We're seeing pieces of it. Uh, like I said, Minister Champagne is leading on a few things, particularly around mineral critical mineral resources. We're seeing uh, Minister Anan talk about the defense strategy review that's currently happening, right? So I'll be watching to see how the Indo-Pacific strategy translates into that defense strategy review, right? Like, wh what, what does that actually mean for our presence in the region, in the Indo-Pacific, I mean, right? When Minister Jolie was asked, in five years, how do we know that the strategy has been successful? She said, well, our close partners like South Korea and Japan would say Canada is a reliable partner and we're happy with them. And ASEAN countries will say that Canada is playing a productive role in ensuring peace and security in the region. Now, I'd be super interested to know what that actually looks like. How is Canada going to be playing that peace and security role, right? And, and what sort of funding and capacity we're putting behind it. So you mentioned that uh, the different ministers have been dribbling out uh, pieces of this of this mm -hmm. strategy. And before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about maybe the, the, the strategy of releasing the strategy. Right. It seems odd that it's almost like they're they're promoting this not like a piece of policy, but almost like a Marvel movie where they're <laughs> releasing teasers and trailers and, and and things expecting to to build up the anticipation of it. I'm not sure. Do you see that as an effective way to communicate this? Well, I mean, you would you would be better judge of that at Navigator. For me, I'm I'm out of government. Obviously, I have no uh, sense of why this is being done this way. Um, 
I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a bit puzzling because in some ways uh, the strategy is being developed over two years. Uh, presumably it's ready now, right? Uh, it's gone through cabinet and, and we're definitely seeing pieces of it. But why it's being done in this kind of a truncated way is it's difficult to know. But I, I am being told and we're all being told that the the full strategy is coming out soon, so uh, we can come back to it again. But I think we're we're sort of seeing the outlines already. So just getting back to China, more than eighty four percent of sorry eighty four percent of Canadians feel that China has a negative influence on world affairs. That's a from a Nanos poll, I think, uh, right. a, a week or two ago. Politically, how does the government balance those concerns with our economic necessities? Yeah, I mean, and you're absolutely right. Uh, public opinion, um, negative public opinion in, about China is on the rise in Canada, but also everywhere else, right? Like that's not unique to Canada. It's also the case in Western Europe, in Australia, in in the U.S. So, and it reflects the the behavior and what we've seen China do, right? I mean, that's that's not an accident. That's that's a reflection of what we're seeing in China's behavior towards Canada and towards other democracies. It, of course, that kind of public opinion creates limitations on the political space that the government has to maneuver. You're absolutely right. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, I think we need to unpack this economic dependence conversation, right? Like everybody always talks about China is our second largest trading partner. But, but it's you, a huge, huge gap between we have like China. 74% with the US and yeah. 4.9 or whatever percent with, with China, right? So like, and then right after that, we have Japan and EU not that far behind China, right? So I mean, it's it's not the kind of dependency that Australia or New Zealand or Japan or Taiwan or other countries in the, in the Pacific have on China, right? Australia's 40% of its trade is with China, and yet Australia has managed to have a strategy that has been a lot more um, assertive and focused on their national security while managing their economic interests, right? So, so it can be done, in other words, is what I'm saying. And we are in a unique position, even more protected than, let's say, Germany, that has a lot more economic vulnerabilities with, with China. So I don't think our trade with China should limit us in developing a more coherent and appropriate response to China writ large as part of a Western coalition collective response to, to what we're now seeing, right? So not just because of our national interests, but because of our values and the broader context of what kind of world do we want to live in, right? Like, I mean, what's at stake now is the, the fate and the future of the world, not just sort of our trade relationship. And I think most people get that. And, and I would say that even uh, we're seeing that kind of understanding in the various speeches of the government. Minister Freeland's speech in Washington very much went in that direction. Um, Champagne, Julie. So we're seeing that uh, change of, of tone and perspective. Bina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zeus Eden, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.